Welcome to C-Suite Radio. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for another edition of the Brett Allen Show. It's go time, you and me. Join us weekly for the latest pop culture interviews from your favorite TV shows, movies, comedians, and so much more. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie to you, felt good. Plus, you never know who will drop by. What happened here was a miracle. Now, here is your host. I said, throw down, boy. Welcome to the night's main event. Brett Allen. Welcome in, everybody, to another episode. Brett Allen here chatting with actor and writer, producer Dan Bukatinsky. I have been a fan for so long, and wow. I, I really, truly have. And I have to say that when I started the show and things started picking up, you were on the list of people that we wanted to talk to. And I, I'm so I'm very thrilled, and I appreciate your time. Uh, thanks well, for hanging thank out. Thank you for today. having me. Thank you, and I appreciate it. And um I, uh, you know, listen, I'm always happy to talk uh, to anybody who likes me and no, I'm only kidding. I'm, I, I, uh, I'm impressed with what you've done so far um, on your end um, and also always happy to talk about work and creative and how it all happens and how we put it together and how we make the donuts. Yes. Well, thank you for the kind words. I'm very excited I, I, I was looking at your filmography and you are a primetime Emmy award winner for scandal. I'm sure you've talked a lot about that, but I want to talk about the fact that you write a lot. You produce a lot. Who do you think you are is one of many things that you've been a part of, which is such a phenomenal show. And that inspired me to go out a few years ago and get a 23 and me kit and sort of learn about my history not nearly as dramatic and presented as your show, but it, it it definitely inspired me. So let's talk about the fact that you are a writer and we have a writer strike going on. I would just love to get your input on this because I've been doing so many interviews this week and we haven't really talked about it, but I want my audience to know it's because of that and what you do 
that we get to enjoy all of this great television that you've been a part of over the years. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for saying that. I've been a writer. Uh, I've been a member of the Writers Guild for 20, almost 25 years. Um, and a member of the Screen Actors Guild for way longer than that, you know, um, way over 35 years. Um, the unions are really important. They are what protect us. They're what give us our pensions and our health care. And they and they create a standard uh, that that allows those of us who work in this industry to be protected on many different levels, um, ostensibly. The difficulty about unions and, uh, and union negotiations and the people that who employ us, who are usually, you know, the platforms and the networks, they're all part of multinational corporations, huge corporate entities that have to basically answer to uh, the stockholders and the stakeholders in their company. Um, and so what's happened over the last decade or two, but really a lot in the last five or six years, is less emphasis on the creative process and the creators and mm -hmm. those who use their, their art to entertain and a lot more emphasis on the dollar, uh, on the bottom line and on making sure that the corporate entities are happy. Now, because of that, minimums have changed, the number of episodes being made on every platform has changed. I'm sure people have noticed that back in the day when there wasn't streaming, the networks would make television shows and there was a thing called the back nine. You'd make 13 episodes and then the if you if the show did well in the fall, you'd get the, the back nine would be the pickup of the last nine episodes of that season mm. and you get 22 episodes. And every TV show that everybody watched hour or half hour were 22 episodes. And writers would be employed from June of the summer, right? When you'd start that writer's room and start breaking story and in a group around a table, write the episodes of that show and then continue on. Let's say you get picked up the back nine, you'd work straight through till May. And these were writers who were career writers who, who would raise their families writing for television or writing films. Mm. Well, as the years progressed, the, the number of platforms that buy content have 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 grown exponentially. Yes. And, you know, just the notion that Amazon was a place where we would buy books a decade ago. <laughs> it's now funny to hear, but true. Yes. I mean, remember, it was like, what's going to happen to all of our bookstores if people buy their books at Amazon? Oh, well, now boy. everybody buys everything at Amazon and including our content, you know. But what's happened now is that they're making fewer and fewer shows in a season of television. They're hiring fewer and fewer writers to create that content. They're relying more and more on the creators of that content to do multiple jobs. The yeah. showrunners, which is a term that was created for the creators and executive producers of television shows, are now required to break an entire season of their show, write that show, or supervise the writing of that show, shoot it, be on set for the shooting of it, post it, edit it, deliver it. And if you're just one person and you're getting paid one salary, you're doing the job of many people. Well, what's now happened is that the writers 
have realized how much of these corporate entities are relying on artificial intelligence to do the work that writers used to do, how many of them are shrinking the number of opportunities there are for writers to learn their craft, have mentors who will teach them how to write in the future and become showrunners in the future. And for the most part, it is doing away with the a middle class that would one day grow to become bosses themselves and creators of new content themselves. And it's a very scary prospect. And so when the writer's contracts were up, they approached the producing entity, the AMPTP, and said, uh, we, we're going to need you to commit to not using artificial intelligence to create first drafts and adapt scripts and do away with the writers that that who have worked so hard and are so talented and deserve to have creative artistic careers working for corporations that are making hundreds and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. Um, and we also want to sort of create a standard by which a television show would hire a certain number of writers and still have a robust uh, careers for, for writers in, in the entertainment industry. And they were not interested. And so the only option we had was to strike. Um, my feelings about the strike are very split. On the one hand, I absolutely believe in what we're fighting for. I do believe that we shouldn't be, that the platforms and the corporations should not be replacing creative artistic uh, entities, those right. of us who tell stories with, uh, with AI. It's, it's a scary thought that, you know, who, who is the, who owns the IP? Uh, who is the creator or author of, of an original work of, of fiction? of script, of television, if it was created by a computer that has, has a conglomeration of all the things that have been fed into it. I mean, who is the creative force behind it? Yeah. Um, we're going to do away with writers. Like, you know, look at all the playwrights in the, in the history of, of the world, of our Shakespeare's and our Pinter's and our Eugene O'Neill's and all these writers who use their personal experience and their emotion and their histories and their childhoods and put them on paper in order to connect with audiences if all that's being created by computer. So there's a real argument to be had here that, that, that would protect the future of storytelling and art and creativity. Um, so I believe in that fight. What, what I'm not excited about is the notion of leverage, that when you walk away, when you're trying to punish the power, those in power, <laughs> yes. you want to make sure that you hit them at a time that's going to hurt them. And unfortunately, at the time that we, the way that the strike happened, we weren't necessarily joining forces with the other unions. I thought that if we had planned this right, IATSE and the DGA and the Writers Guild and the actors, all of us at the same time on the same day, just would walk off our jobs. And it would be an unbelievable message that would be heard by everyone in the world and it would hobble the industry. But instead, what's happened is we've created an opportunity for these billionaire, you know, billion dollar making corporations to save money, yeah. to stockpile shows, to cut bait, to get rid of some content that they don't think was performing for them or had not gained its audience yet. And I feel like we have bought them an opportunity more than, more than um, punished them. 
Um, and my analogy is like sending up my teenagers, punishing them and sending them up to their rooms where they have unlimited Wi-Fi and bags of organ <laughs> and said, now you go up there and you stay in your room. And they'll be like, all right, Oreos and Wi-Fi, I'm good to go. So I'm a little concerned about our lack of leverage at this particular moment in history, but but I am hoping that it is that that the message has has come across that the publicity that the Writers Guild has has earned and has continued to perpetuate during the strike um, has sent a message about the future uh, of of content and that the the support that we get from the directors and the writers and other unions will only bolster that position. So I'm hoping that in the upcoming month or two, we start to build a little bit more leverage in our walkout. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to explain that because for a while there was a bit of a struggle on, on our end. It's like, do we continue to do this? I mean, we're obviously supporting you, the artists when, when we have you come on and talk about your things, although we're a small very small part of all of that. And then it's like other things are continuing to go. Some shows are filming still. The Tony Awards happened without writers. They went ahead. I was part of their agreement in this. So they went scriptless, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, obviously, all the talk shows that heavily rely on that Saturday Night Live, all of that went dark. You being on Chicago Med recently, having a story arc. We've had many of those cast members on. And that all came to a halt. So it's interesting. I, I hope it gets to a place of resolve soon, right? Because I, yeah, yeah, especially it, it, with the COVID and everything, and everything yeah. was gone for so long, and now this. It's I get it, and it makes sense. But I, I think people, it's an interesting perspective you have, striking hard and fast, and not striking hard halfway, and then now it sounds like there might be an actors' guild strike potentially down the road. Yeah, there's some hope that the actors will be able to come to a terms. But I'll tell you something, the pandemic didn't do us any favors either. Like what it no. did when everybody shut down for no fault of our own. Talk about, you know, um, force majeure in a way, but everybody just sort of stopped. The, everybody was at home watching movies and watching television. Oh, yeah. And what it proved to all of those corporate entities that create content normally is that they have enough that they have, you know, international television series. They have the old shows that people were enjoying watching from scratch. And what it sort of taught them, and we inadvertently educated them and empowered them to not need writers as much as we wish that they did. And it's scary. It really scares me as a creator, as somebody who wants to keep coming up with new television shows. And I take them out. I take out pitches all the time. And I hope that that people will buy what I'm what I'm selling. It it has weakened us a little bit. Just their knowledge that their existing libraries of shows that can be watched again and again and again is one of the things that weakened us a bit. Um, the other thing you brought up, which is so interesting, which is like, where do you draw the line? When I'm a producer as well as a writer as well as an actor, um, you know, if as an actor. If I'm hired tomorrow to go finish a television show for a platform that we're striking against, one could argue that by agreeing to go, yeah. I'm helping them finish their season and I'm helping them be, have more content to be able to ride out our strike even longer. Yeah. So am I selling arms to the Russians? I have this 
debate with myself every day. If I have a conversation with someone about content, I don't want to have it with the platforms because I don't want to strengthen their position. It'll only prolong the strike, which affects me. So every day is a question about ethics, about where we stand, about I have to feed my family. I have to make a living. I can't not because I've got kids and they've got school and we've got bills. And so you have to weigh the greater good of the of what we're fighting for in the future with the day to day struggle of the artist. It's really it's been it's been very challenging. I can imagine and I mean, honestly, I rewatched Scandal during COVID because I hadn't seen it for so long, along with other shows, you know, that I hadn't watched for a while. And the beautiful home that you're in now, people will see. I mean, I one of the misconceptions I had very early on before I started talking to such fantastic people like yourself and actors in general, it's like the, you're sort of far removed from what is reality versus what one could assume financially as an actor or working actor, whatever the case might be, but like the bills are still due at the end of the day. I had a conversation with Jake Busey right when the pandemic hit and he was talking about, you know, getting these notices from SAG saying, Hey, your loan for your car is through us. We're going to start deferring payments. Like it was a really big deal. And I, I use him as an example just because of the fact it's crazy. I mean, and then streaming and not everybody in this industry has the staying power to hold a film out of theaters for three years and then do like a massive blockbuster release and control. I'm sure you probably are picking up who I'm talking about, but it's like the Top Guns and the Murder Mysteries and all these great projects. You know, not everybody has that power to just kind of hold everything I did want to ask you, we we talked about streaming and then we'll move on from this. Do you feel, I mean, you, we talked about it briefly just a few minutes ago, but streaming obviously has not helped the situation either because it's hard to quantitate numbers and, and all of that. As far as you mentioned, the back nine on a series might normally work, you know, if a show does well, but Netflix just puts it all out there or any of these and people can watch it at their leisure and it it doesn't really matter. Although recently they have been pulling shows off. I guess my question is, it's a bit broad, so I apologize, but that's not going to help this matter either really, right? If they know they can just keep pumping out old things, right? Library shows, not like anything really, I guess it could be. Yeah. I mean, listen, the bottom line, it's supply and demand at the end of the day, like any business, as long as people want the donuts they will continue to show the donut makers will continue to make them right. Yeah. And if uh, if the stale day, I mean, this analogy is going to die in about three minutes. If the day <laughs> old, if the day old donuts are doing fine for them, then they're like, guys, we don't need to make new donuts. Like we have so many of the donuts that we made last week, which because of the kind of ingredients that we use, are still they still seem fresh. They're still tasty. Let's just sell old donuts. So the truth is, no, it does not help us that uh, that 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 platforms 
stockpiled so much content. And listen, they were very bullish. Netflix was buying everything for a period of a couple of years. And they were buying really interesting projects. This is where it gets really about the art of it also. The kind of work a person could do at Netflix as an artist, as an actor, was so much more interesting and so much less formulaic than necessarily what was being pumped out of the broadcast networks, which are ad-supported. When you have a platform that's not reliant on advertising, which at the time the streamers were not. Now, of course, all the streamers are not making enough money for them and they all want to get into the advertising game. And I understand that. But the minute you are the minute that you are beholden to the advertisers, there is a little bit of a shift in the kind of content that you can make. How dark is it going to be? How niche is it going to be? How graphic is it going to be? Um, There were always a lot of rules, very strict rules about what America wants to see when the coffee and soap makers are paying for the time. But when you're on a streamer or when you're on cable and you're paying a premium for your content, wow, we can tell a story about polyamorous relationships and we can tell a story about a cult and we can tell murder documentaries and we can tell gay content and straight content. And it got very, very interesting and dynamic and multi-layered on the cable and streaming platforms. And it became the place where every writer and every actor wanted to be working because they could be more creative and inventive and authentic. And well, what's happened is there was just so much content And they bought so much that the amount of profit that they could make off of that content started to diminish. And so now they're buying less and they're making less. Um, Yeah, it's not going to help us. I'm not quite sure. I think that the business is just going to change. Yeah. Whether, whether, when the strike is over or whether, you know, however way we, we settle uh, and, and come to terms with the producers, the business will not look the way it did 10 years ago. It will not look the way it did five years ago. It's going to be different. And what you're saying is true. There's a very, very small percentage of writers and actors in our business who are making the Shonda Rhimes money and the Ryan Murphy money and even the actors off of shows that have earned millions and millions of dollars, very, very fortunate artists. That's a very small number compared to even working actors, myself included. Yeah. I do. I wear lots of different hats, not just because I love to tell stories in lots of different ways, but also because we have to cobble together a a living and doing a couple of TV show episodes here and writing a couple of things over here. Those things in and of themselves do not hold it all together. You know, no, like, they don't. It takes a lot, and 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 they keep talking about a gig economy. It's true. Our business is going to be, and it has been really for a while, job to job to job. You might. I was on a show called The Baker and the Beauty, which I loved being a part of. We only made nine episodes. Yeah. I moved to Puerto Rico. We shot nine episodes of this great show. We had a wonderful time. We shot um, from September to March. The pandemic hit the week after I got back. The show premiered on ABC during the pandemic and it had a following, but the numbers weren't as high and we couldn't promote the show because we couldn't go and do talk shows because everything had shut down. So the show didn't do a second season. It's a perfect example of how that was a really fun, great experience, but it was very limited. We all made nine episodes. We were paid for it. We have to live off of that show 
that we did in 2019 and 20 <laughs> for, you know, as long as it takes to get the next job. So I think we're looking at a real shift in our industry and it's scary. It's exciting. I'm also eager to find out the new ways in which all of us can start to tell stories and build content in ways that we haven't even thought of before. And I'm hoping that that happens as well. Yeah, it's all very exciting. Well, speaking of, you've been a part of some great projects, some standouts to me, obviously, are Scandal, Web Therapy, The Comeback, 24 Legacy. I mean, that was just amazing. I think that's when we first attempted to get you on and things were just crazy busy for you. Then COVID hit and everybody was available. Uh, and that was helpful to us, selfishly, the part of the pandemic sucked. But I want to ask you, when it comes to projects and looking at things that you have been a part of, obviously you are a working actor. You've mentioned that you were talking about going from show to show. But when you do have the choice or to be able to be a little bit selective, are there certain things that are important to you, uh, Dan, as a storyteller that you just look for and go, okay, I think this is going to make great television? Well, that's a really good question. And I think that it depends on what hat I'm wearing at the time. Okay. Um, You know, I, as a producer, when people come to me with a project, uh, how I respond to it and how I respond to the writing of someone else's writing as whether I want to, and I feel like I could be additive in terms of taking that show and making it better and making it marketable and having being a part of a cog of, a, of someone else's storytelling, it often has to do with authenticity of character. It often has to do with humor. Um, the quality of the writing, this is why it comes back to the writer, the writer's strike. Everything leads back to that because without, the, without writers, we don't have points of view and humor and characters and layers and intrigue and all that stuff doesn't get written by itself. So, I get drawn to certain kinds of projects. Um, As an actor, similarly, I respond to the writing. If the writing is great, if the role... Lately, I've been very driven to play roles that that I normally would not be seen as. Okay. You know, I'm an out gay actor. I'm also a dad. I've written a book about being a dad and my experience and my journey to parenthood. I'm pretty vocal about those kinds of things. I played a dad who adopted a baby on scandal. You know, I often am getting to offer roles that are quite similar to who I am as a person, but I'm also drawn to characters that really stretch me into other directions. Would I love to play the sheriff on some procedural show on CBS. Absolutely. You know, like that's something that I would normally not be seen as, and I think would be kind of a, a fun challenge. And it would surprise audiences to see someone that looks like me in a role that you would not normally find or a villain. I'm always asking my manager and my agent, find me some Marvel <laughs> villain that looks like me that you think is kind of a nice guy. And then is absolutely ruthless. Um, <laughs> I'd love to play roles like that. So I guess looking for surprises, looking for original, unique points of view. Um, But I also just love lots of different things. I love, I have developed in the past a cooking show. I've developed a documentary series. Who do you think you are is a huge passion of mine. Lisa Kudrow and I were producing partners for 17 years. And that has been one of the things that we enjoyed producing more than anything, because it's about real history. It's about real experience, 
you know, contextualizing history. Um, but we also made the comeback. We also made web therapy and we are also currently producing 25 words or less, which is a game show. So I, I love this business. I love storytelling. I love game shows. I love talk shows. I love documentary series. I love comedies and I love dramas. So for me, it's not about picking one genre over another. It's about what's the game. You know, just like game shows, if somebody asked me, if they had asked me 10 years ago, if I was going to be a game show producer, I would say absolutely not. But at the same time, I loved watching game shows as a kid. I love being celebrity, a celebrity on game shows. And I've been on a bunch of them and I have absolutely loved producing 25 words or less. So I kind of like keeping myself open because if the idea is good and it's fun and it's authentic and it's original, I'm, I'm game. I love that. So when you're on a show like 24 legacy, which was, I don't know if it was the, it was different than the original, but was in somewhat of the same world or a little bit of a different world, or maybe like scandal or some of these other shows. When you leave big projects like that, where you have multiple episodes where you're a lead or a supporting, when you are, are you always looking at the next thing while you're doing that? Or do you like to finish a project and you're, looking at things as you move along and just want to go the antithesis of what you've done before. Let's say for scandal, for example, where you won your Emmy, that was a huge show. That was one of the biggest shows on television at the time. Yeah. When you leave that and you start getting other offers for similar characters, is it hard to say no, because you want to keep working or can you be a little bit selective at that point and go, I just sort of did this. You know, or maybe you lean into it and go, sure, why not? You know, let's just see what happens and roll the dice with the story. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I did not know that Scandal was going to come to an end for me. I don't think um, anybody knew, really. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the reasons why it was such a genius move to to sort of have the character go through what that character went through was what a surprise it was, how it sort of caught people off guard yeah. a little bit. Although if you look back on it now, you know, my character was poking the bear a lot and was asking for trouble. So too many uh, questions I, you were, you were asking too, too many, many questions, questions. <laughs> but I wasn't a regular on scandal at any point. I was in like 27 episodes, but I was a guest star on every single episode, which is something that is harder to get away with these days than it was back then. Um, and when I left Scandal, I was devastated. I was the best job I've ever had. I loved the material. I loved that character. And I loved my castmates as I still do today. Um, so I was in a little bit of a, I was in a little bit of a, of a tailspin. Is that the expression? I just didn't know what, yeah. I, and I, and I uh, let's see, from the time that I knew that my character, there was a bit of a two month lag from the time we shot the end of that character's uh life not spoiler alert but it was a long time ago so yeah people if you haven't seen scandal yet i'm so sorry i'm letting you know that it's really fun to watch and you should watch the first four seasons and then whatever you do after that is up to you but that (laughs) my character doesn't is not around anymore after the fourth season but i had a couple of months after i knew that and the show hadn't those episodes hadn't aired yet and I was very eager to find another thing, to just to find something else. And I really did want to be in a comedy. And I was offered an opportunity to, to join the cast of a new pilot called Marry Me that my friend Ken Marino was on and my dear departed friend Jamie Tarsis was producing. 
And I was a huge fan of David Casp, who wrote it and had created Happy Endings. And um, I was uh, so I joined the cast of, of Marry Me for NBC. And we shot maybe 12 or 14 episodes. And um, the show was a blast. The op- It was very different from Scandal. And it was a really nice ch- change and a nice departure. But the show didn't make it past the one season. So once that did not get picked up for another season, um, I was very eager to see what, what, what the world would bring. And 24 Legacy, I thought, oh, my God, this is going to run forever. It's a 24. Like, 24, I, I was a huge fan of 24. In fact, 24 was so innovative. You were, too. Oh, I, 24 is I was when Scandal you possible. watched. Yeah, that's when you watched TV, like, by appointment. You there was For not, sure. No streaming. DVRs, I think, were around. But, yeah, I watched that, that of- show. That level of serialized storytelling, I used to just love. And I actually believe, and I said this to the guys when I met them on on 24, I go, they were the reason why Shonda was allowed to do the kind of storytelling she did on Scandal, where characters that you that you thought were there to stay were suddenly killed off, and anything that could anything that could happen would happen. And there was no taboo, like anything was possible. And that kind of storytelling was helped feed what what scandal became. Um, so I was really excited to become part of Twenty Four Legacy. I was a big fan of the original show, um, and I didn't imagine that we would only do one season. Um, I don't think anybody. I think the did. show was a little bit, in hindsight, I think the show was a little bit too similar to the original. They were using storylines even in the new version that were. Almost identical to storylines that had already been used before, and I feel like if they had t- used the the premise and the device of every every episode is an hour in the same day, but really changed the landscape of the kind of terrorism and who the players were and all that, I think it may have had a better shot. Um, but. Uh, no, that show didn't go past a season either. So it's ever since Scandal, it's been a show to a show to a show to a show. And um, I'm always excited to get the chance to go do something new. I've been in a bunch of movies um, ever since. Um, but um, after Scandal and Marry Me and 24, and then I did a pilot for NBC, another, uh, it was a sitcom. And I've always wanted to be a regular on a sitcom, but that show didn't get picked up. Um, this is the life of the actor. When you're just acting, you are completely beholden to the luck of the draw, what the network wants, how those shows test, how those shows perform. And so much of your fate is in the hands of of other forces. And I guess one of the reasons I do as much as I do as a, as a creator, as a producer and as a writer, is that it helps me feel like I have some control over my destiny, even if it's just a, the illusion of control. Well, from my perspective and your fans and other people, I mean, you've had measurable success. I, again, being in an industry that is so different than like anything else anybody could imagine. And I've learned so much about your business just from talking to people because it's just so weird and crazy. It's not like any other job in the world ever because you just don't know unless you're on like a Grey's Anatomy or I don't know, even then it's like, you just never know. Well, I want to ask you a couple last questions on a side note about the 24. Didn't Chloe make, am I misremembering? Chloe didn't show up in your role. Did she, the character, I 
Mary, was she on that show or I, I don't know. Cause they were some similar storylines. I probably am misremembering. So, but it just, no, you're not, you're not. I mean, she did not appear in, in our, in our season, but I was sort of the Chloe of the news. Yeah. Show. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah. And I reached out to Mary, to Mary Lynn uh, Raskob. And I said, I think I'm you in the new reboot of 24. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it didn't exist in the same space. I think there were a couple of characters that came into our world who had been in the previous world. Um, but, uh, but the figures and where we stood and CTU and the way the stories happened and how they unfolded, all of it were, was, was treading on territory that had been tread before. Yes. It was a lot of fun. Well, again, thank you so much. One last question. Sure. I, I just thought of everything that you've done, and all the different characters you've played, whether they're like you or not like you, is there one possibly to pin down where you have learned something about yourself as an actor or as a human or as a father uh, that you didn't realize about yourself, that you maybe see a little bit of yourself in that character from anything that you've played? Because you've played a lot of characters in your career. Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, you bring so much of yourself to every role that you play. So to yeah. some degree, it would be no surprise that I wound up imbuing a lot of these characters with aspects of my personality. You know, I I, I don't want to be predictable about it, but I think that the, the role that changed my life the most, obviously, for obvious reasons, but it was also the most... I don't know. I had the greatest epiphanies while while shooting Scandal. Playing James was a character. Mashonda knew me before she wrote that part, so she okay. wrote she wrote it for me, and she knew that I had written a book, and she knew. So she created this part of a journalist who wanted to adopt a baby, and I was a writer who had adopted a baby. So she was drawing from what she knew about me anyway. Okay. But when I when I started playing that character. And when I was in those scenes with an actor as accomplished as Jeff Perry and the cast, all of whom were bringing their A-game, I started to have these revelations about things that I learned in acting classes that I never understood, just concepts about acting that I never understood that were coagulating for me while I was shooting scenes of Scandal. So... I have to say that that was the role that felt a the closest to me, but also allowed me to get to the most authentic version of myself emotionally on television. Um, wow. I love playing Billy in the comeback. Of course, I loved being in the comeback. I loved creating the comeback. It's such an iconic show. And I loved playing a character whose rage was worn on his sleeve all the time. Um, that was a fun character to play. Um, Great show. But, but I think James was the was the game changer for me. Yes. And I do remember so many iconic scenes from Scandal when you and Jeff meet and you have those intimate moments. It just it, this that show was, I think, cutting edge for television uh, for sure. And just were, some so yeah. fantastic. I, I a lot of those scenes stand out to me to this day that's been years yeah you know just how fun that was and i think it was you or him maybe a few years ago posted a picture on socials happy father's day and it was your characters together playing with your kids at the park or something yeah, like yeah. that i did yeah. i did we, we did a photo shoot so that we would have things to put in our in the photo frames on the set 
and we the twins who played our little daughter Ella were so cute. And Jeff and I would showed up at the park and we played with, with them and they just snapped a huge whole bunch of photographs. But it was such a fun day. And I always think about that day and I think about those photographs a lot. Wonderful. Well, Dan, um, yeah, I mean that that just I could talk to you forever, but I know you're a very busy individual and I thank you for your time and your graciousness. You. And uh, I appreciate you hanging out with us. Well, today, I appreciate Dan. it. I appreciate it. I, and, and, you know, I am, um, I'm going to update, I'm going to, I'll update my website, danbukatinsky.com with, with, the, with some exciting stuff that's coming down the pike um, on a regular basis. That's also where to find me on socials. Um, so that's just always the best place for the updates as things are evolving. Um, and I really appreciate you having me on and chatting with me. It's been, it's been really fun. Thanks for listening and being a part of today's conversation. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. It's absolutely free. A mega proportion. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. And remember, we care.